All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Back at it, Larice. Larice, where are we going today? Today, we are going to explore the community of Upper Hammonds Plains. Upper Hammonds Plains is a community with a rich African Nova Scotian heritage. So I don't know. When I look at Hammonds Plains, it's it's interesting. I didn't spend a lot of time in Hammonds Plains. Times I did spend in Hammonds Plains were for the Can Jam Festival, uh-huh. of course, basketball. The connection apparently runs deep on my mother's side in Hammonds Plains. It's something that I find interesting because as we go along, we continue along this journey, we start really starting to dig into our history and find out about our connections to some of these communities that we wouldn't even consider. And at times I feel a little bit, I feel robbed sometimes that I don't know this stuff. It feels strange. Like, why, why didn't I know this? But, you know, we're learning it now, which is positive. But how different would it have been if I knew this growing up? Such a, such a rich, rich history and... Yes, we would have benefited immensely by, you know, having an understanding. That's where the opportunity lies for you and I and, you know, what we're doing with this platform and actually really, you know, digging into these conversations and dispelling any myths that are out there about our communities and our contributions to, you know, Nova Scotia and like we say, like Canada on the broader level. Because, I mean, this country wouldn't be what it is. This province wouldn't be what it is without our ancestors. When it comes to like my connection, like I've learned that I do have connections to this community, direct family ties that I've learned of since we started this journey of uh of learning about our history. And yeah, I am extremely excited to continue that journey and, you know, learn more and, you know, have these conversations because they're very empowering. So, I mean, we might as well get into this and we might as well introduce our special guest, Curtis Wally. Hello, Curtis. Welcome to the Loyalist Connections Podcast. Please tell us uh, about yourself and your connection to the community of Upper Hammonds Plains. Absolutely. So my, I'm Curtis Wiley Jr. And I am from Upper Hammonds Plains. And so although I didn't grow up right in Upper Hammonds Plains, I grew up just kind of, you know, in a community down the street. Um, my family had been had been in Upper Hammonds Plains since its founding in 1815. Growing up, I would visit Upper Hammonds Plains often and just... That was my community, and so as I as I grew up, I would go there to visit my you know my friends and and all of that. So it was a place that I was in a lot. For me personally, there's been all of this development that's happening. So I don't even really know where to start with this, but essentially, I think I need to tell you a little bit more about me and how I got into this housing. Thing. Absolutely, so I studied at SMU. At SMU, they had this this property management kind of like a promo or you know pilot class, and so I had taken that and ended up kind of getting really interested in real estate. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated, there was a job at Housing Nova Scotia. Yeah. So I took that job. I was a caseworker and I delivered home repair assistance. And my area was from basically downtown Dartmouth, out the eastern shore to Ecom Seacom. So it included the Preston Township. And so I started delivering home repair assistance in the Prestons. And so folks would, you know, apply for things to, you know, applying for grants, essentially, and forgivable loans to fix their home. And fo- some folks would apply, but they didn't have clear land types. So this was the first kind of experience I had had with 
fractured land titles mm-hmm. and how not having clear land title is this significant barrier. I never really understood it up until this point. Yeah. So I would have clients, you know, applying and I would have to tell them I couldn't I couldn't invest in their homes. I couldn't actually put give them a grant because you had to have title to your home. Right. right? So can you explain what a fractured land title is? Right. So a fractured land title can be any title other than you being the owner. So a fractured title could be that it shows up as a deceased, you know, relative. It could be that um, it's coming up as unknown owner. It could be that it's coming up as crown or ungranted land. So fractured titles and, you know, fractured titles happen, essentially it fractures at one point in time, and then it kind of perpetuates this cycle of unclear title. And it gets harder and harder to clear it as time goes on, right? right? more people that end up staying or using and occupying it. And so it fractures the period that you'd be able to use for a claim. Exactly. So how do you resolve that? Well, exactly. So I did. So I served, did that program for a long time. And then they announced that there would be this land titles initiative. And I was like, oh, this will be great. This will this will clear up folks titles. You know, right. that'll be able to to give more money to folks in the community or, you know, to help more more families. And then they were looking for folks. And I was like, look, I really understand this. I'll go do this for a year, clear the titles and come back, right? Such is not the case. I, I went there and here we are, I guess, in year four of the Land Titles Initiative. Because wow. I, 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 I work on that initiative for, on behalf of the province. Although I'm not showing up here today as, as a, a public servant, I'm showing up here as a community advocate right. um, on behalf of the Land Trust and Upper Hamlet's Plains. I can speak a little bit about the land title concerns. Yeah. Right? I well, it's good to have the background, right? Yeah. So that's essentially been my, and so through my work on the Land Titles Initiative, well, during this time too, I also moved to Nunavut and lived in the North for a year and a half during COVID. <laughs> yeah. So it's just been <laughs> a so bad experience. Right. So yeah, exactly. So when COVID hit, I guess it hit in March. And then by June, I was like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> so I moved to the Arctic to a community called Arkviet and I lived there for 18 months. Yeah. No trees, just very, you know, it's in the Arctic Circle. So it's very, very cold, minus 50 for probably like. How did you survive? When I reflect on it, it was really challenging. It was, but it was such like an adventure. And I didn't consider myself to be like an adventure seeking person. But yeah. when you're put in that environment, it's just, it had, you know, it hits you, you know, and it, it humbled me. Uh, in a number of different ways it also caused me to reflect a lot on you know our communities and mm-hmm. and i had never lived in another racialized space i don't i had never not lived in nova scotia right um so for me it was just it was humbling and it made me think that you know there are so many great things about our black community in terms of our pride and our autonomy not that not that the inuit don't have that but it's different um and our our sense of community i think is 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 very similar but we have a strong rooted passion for, you know, our history and our people. Right. Um, as do the Inuit. I don't want to, you know, say that that's not the case, but it did make me, you know, really reflect and be like, you know, we do do a lot of things right. Um, and, and, and so when I was in the North, I'm going to be all over the place, I guess, with this story. That's when right. I was in the North, I was thinking, like, how can I still stay involved in my community? Like, what can I be doing to advance what's going on in Upper Hammond's Plains in regards to land? And so that's when I started from the North working with my community around this issue around land protection. That's why we decided that we would found this community land trust to 
to kind of be a mechanism to combat some of these issues. Mm-hmm. So I did that for my RVA. So yeah. talking about sure. Hammond's playing yeah. himself and yeah. like growing up there, what was that like? Um, sure. And I mean, Upper Hammond's Plains is a predominantly black community. Yeah. Well, you know, I need to be honest. I, I didn't grow up up home. Uh, uh-huh. I would be there on the weekends. Right. I didn't live right in the community. So folks that lived right in the community would have a different experience. For me, it was, you know, going to my grandmother's house, essentially, right. and visiting like the neighboring community, the neighboring homes, and really having like a strong connection to my blackness. You know, mm-hmm. I think that was where I felt my sister and I felt the most comfortable or, you know, felt like we could you know, at a young age, but not really understanding all of the complexities uh-huh. of, yeah. of of your um, physical, you know, appearance, your race. It was amazing. And I can remember going to Can Jam festivals. Yeah. And then once I got my license, I was there a lot more because I could just yeah. take myself there. Nice. Right? So during my teenage years, I spent a lot of time. Uh, we also call uh, uh, Hamilton Up Home. Yeah. <laughs> the Up Home Battle, right? The similarities between all exactly. the communities in that sense. Exactly. Right? But, you know, Upper Hammond's Plains, is, it's, an, it's an amazingly beautiful community, you know, with a rich, rich history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you more about our, my family's history in particular. Does that have anything to do with the Wiley Box Factory? Exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. 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 So, um, you know, a few, I guess a few years ago, I don't know how many years ago now, they have a family kind of a celebration at the church, Emmanuel Baptist Church each year, where they kind of talk about each family and kind yes. of the successes in our community. Folks get up, we clap for them and celebrate each other for our accomplishments, you That's know, graduating amazing. from university, mm-hmm. um, you know, all kinds of different accomplishments. I was asked to get up and give a family history about my family. And it, it, it took me on this journey of like basically figuring out, okay, well, what really is like, you know, how far back usually i would just talk about my my dad or whatever yeah, right. my grandfather my grandparents but never going farther but this kind of took me on a whole journey and at the time i was working at african nova scotian affairs so they they also have you know this deep passion for understanding one's history and so it took me on this journey of like figuring out exactly how where what happened and like going back to the original documents and looking so like in 1815 my great 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 grandfather Deal Wiley came to Abraham's place as an emancipated slave from Virginia. And so he was a cooper. Or he he used to make barrels in Virginia that were they used to put tobacco in to take overseas, right? And so he had these coopering skills. He knew how to take wood and manufacture it into like barrels and other it wasn't like like Upper Hammond's Plains, like a lumber well, community, it, right? right? Exactly. So when he came to Hammond's Plains, Hammond's Plains at the time was only 34 years old and it was rich in timber, much really mm-hmm. densely mature forest and lumbering and forestry was the primary uh, industry for the for the settlers at that time. So he came as an emancipated slave, but it was also refugees from the War of 1812, right? right? Yep. So they came to this community and there was all this timber, right? And so they started, they brought these skills that weren't here yet about Again. how to manufacture bears. Yeah. So that's how it started. We had this conversation like, how come we didn't know this stuff? Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, they were they were actually like, the, the barrels were being 
wrapped with other pieces of wood. There wasn't steel, like like how, what would later happen. Yeah. With the, actually, the iron. Yes. You know what I mean? That part of the coopering wasn't hadn't hadn't been, I guess, you know, started yet. So so that's what happened. Essentially, Deal came here and started with these skills. Him and along with other folks as well, yes. right? So then sawmills became the prime cooper shops, and sawmills started to spring up along Hammond's Plains, right? Upper Hammond's Plains, rather, because yes. they wouldn't let them settle, right? And Hammond's Plains, they were in this other area, uh, of course, which is the story of all of our communities, essentially, right? Uh-huh. The isolation that kind of puts you out yeah. there to fail. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's lots of hardships, as mm-hmm. as most folks faced, right? You had racism, like yeah. over and systemic racism. Absolutely. We had uh, diseases like TB, lack right. of education. Tuberculosis killed many, there's many people. a couple people of famines in thrown in there as well, too, exactly. right? So. And then you have, you know, groups of folks that went back to, like, back to Trinidad. Yeah. So then taking that, I guess, so then Deal, you know, has children. And they, so he starts this sawmill. Um, with a number of other families. And, you know, the I guess the record is that it started in 1834, but it would have probably started as soon as they came, but it wouldn't have been like an official, yes. you know, thing. Yeah. So then, you know, the business essentially operated up until White Wan, that hurt, that white, um, or that snowstorm, which damaged oh, the mill. So, um, so the mill operated. Yeah. So the mill operated for decades, decades, yeah. uh, manufacturing barrels um, and fish boxes. So then it was barrels at the beginning. They would put the barrels on like horse and wagon and drive them down Hamilton's Road, which was dirt road at the time, <laughs> all the way to Bedford Basin. Right. Oh, so so our, you know, folks in our community did well. You know, yeah. it was it, they were industrial people. Um, you know, they were also faithful people. Our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, there was essentially the history there is that there was two separate churches, but then they amalgamated, I believe, in the 1840s. um, And it became uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church at that time. And I think, you know, they just celebrated their 176th anniversary just this summer. So, you know, very faithful people. And, you know, Upper Hamlet's Plains is also, we built our first segregated school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, our, our, the black students couldn't go to school with the other white kids uh so we had to build a segregated school and i was confused about that i was like oh we built a segregated school like why was there white people there uh-huh. right but it, it was a segregated school just for black people yeah right but it was uh, that used to confuse me because i think segregated and you think okay there's white classrooms but no it's a one room schoolhouse it's segregated just for black people yeah so that one room schoolhouse it's and so now the upper Hamilton's community center is actually built around it so when you walk into one of the rooms it is that old one and the walls the brick walls are still the same brick really? walls from wow. the one room like they built onto so, the school house so the community center is built onto the yeah. previous or yes the, the segregated school exactly the one room school and one wall, one wall in the center and we call it the center is is that same brick they've wow. painted over it but it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. touch those bricks those bricks that's are the history same right bricks. there so exactly that's wild which that's, is wild yeah. right yeah like you so i mean right now like i mean even before we get into it, you really define like some of the key characteristics of the community yeah. that you know create like identify yeah. or create an identity you know for the members of the community. We get the like exactly. industry like lumber, but so you talked about like the churches as a pillar. Yeah, you talked about you know the, the the segregated schools. Are there any other stories that you may know that you know have lived through the times? Yeah, well, I'm thinking too about so um, there are a number of fires. In our community. So like the, 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 
the sawmill of my family, I think it burnt down six times. What? Right? And they would rebuild. It would burn out of a Right. So out of necessity, our community founded the first all black volunteer fire department in North America. That's wow. right. In yes. Upper Hamas Plains. Right. Nice. And so something that people are super prideful of, like my, I still have the hat for my grandfather that he would have put on to like go, you know, it's like a fireman's hat, essentially. So, you know, there's there's a number of, of, of incredible things, I think, and pride and this deep, this is, it goes back to this deep sense of rootedness. And I think yeah. what, what really is, makes us so passionate, this group of us, about preserving and protecting our community. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and all of our communities, quite frankly, yep. because, you know, we're all in different stages and there's all the different things happening in, in all of them. But I think, you know, our collective, I, I, you know, things like this sharing our, our, our information and what's happening is so critical. That's what the platform's for, yeah. right? And so, you know, when yeah. we think about the community itself, yep. the geography, right? Sure. How big was Upper Hammonds Plains and yeah, what's it like How now? <laughs> That's a great point. Um, you know, Upper Hammonds Plains is large. Our community, I don't think, has the same, of course, we has the same, I guess, um, the same concern over our community shrinking, I guess, civically speaking or municipally speaking. Mm-hmm. There's a set boundary, essentially, which starts at White Hills and you know, our community kind of goes back from there. Yeah. Um, so I know that other communities, because of sprawl and gentrification, are, you know, there's so much encroachment happening. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have that. We have it happening just right inside our community. So I think the size of the community, I don't believe, has changed uh, in terms of, you know, boundary lines. Right. It's still essentially the same size i would say right um but it's i guess it's representation it's representation within the community. it's definitely it's definitely right so you know when i was young if hamas plains upper hamas plains rather was just us just black people yeah. right <laughs> now we're we're like probably a minority in our own community at Whoa. this point and that is just going to be yeah. continue very exponentially in our community mm-hmm. even with all of the work that we're doing it's just it's like trying to stop a train, right? So that those those mm. approvals are happening all the time, and and we don't see the shovels hit the ground for those approvals. You know, sometimes a year or two after they're approved. Don't right? they have like community uh, like awareness or community information no. sessions about those? No, because Upper Hammond's Plain is is its zoning is unique and makes it very attractive. I saw that, yeah, for developers, right? Because they don't have to do you know they don't have to put that blue sign out and be like. We're proposing yeah, public this notice, for your yeah. community. Yeah, no, proposal. it's all as of right usage, so they can put whatever they want on that land and not tell Stop anybody. Stop it. <laughs> so we so we can get into the zoning. Yeah, right. Yeah, so then, let's, we can get into the zoning. Yeah. Let's get into yeah. zoning. Okay. So look, the history behind the GU one zoning was that it was put in place to benefit residents in the community. It was to give us more open uses of our land, right, and more ways for us to generate income and more ways for us to less restriction, right? But be, so. That was great for a time, right? When nobody was thinking that Halifax was going to develop so much that people would even be considering developing in Upper Hammond's Plains, it was fine. Let's leave that community G1 zoning. But, you know, in the last probably 10 years, five years, it's become extremely attractive because they other developers can come in and leverage that less restrictive zoning for their own benefit, right? Um, and so... That's what's happened, but it has happened quickly. So, you know, something that, and, and the biggest piece of it is that because of 
centuries of inequality, right? Which has basically exponent, which has most affected people's marginalized communities, right? right? Marginalized so, communities. So we, we don't have, have the, exactly. Yeah. So we don't have the financial capacity to finance development the same, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't have the same ability to purchase land and finance developments like like corporations can, right. um, or like funding from overseas can. Yeah. Right. So essentially people are coming in and buying the land and developing it with with little restriction because they can do that. And because there's so much sprawl now, it doesn't make a difference if you put up an apartment building in Upper Hammond's Plains, people are going to go live there. That doesn't matter. Right. And so the developments in Upper Hammond's Plains are large. You know, there's row housing. There's multi multifamily like, you know, I guess there would be perhaps 16 units, like in a in an actual tall apartment building. And there's multiple. For example, there's a large development now that's happening. Their first, I guess, 40 units are are for sale, but they're going going to put 160 units on that parcel. And we didn't wow. even have to know we didn't even know. We we find out when fa- all of a sudden on Facebook it says now, now leak now phase one. Or we or all of a sudden you're driving and there's a huge clear-cut area and we have to call the city and be like what's happening here so that's the zoning thing and so we over the last it's taken us probably a year and a half to get to this stage we've been working with the city we've gone community consultation we're about to add something we want to keep the gu zoning because it is yes. valuable no other communities really have it but we want to add this kind of bit about if it's an apartment I building ask a question though consultation. when yeah. we talk about the value of that zoning yeah do the members of the community understand the value of that when they're selling? No. No, and that's the other thing. Like, you know, folks are going to sell. That's they're going to sell. At the yeah. yeah. At the beginning, I was like, we have to get the trust in a position where we can start, like, engaging with folks, right? But, you know, we're never going to be able to compete with some of these developers, right? No. They just, it, their funding is unlimited, and they can just say, oh, we'll buy this from you for whatever. Um but you know, people are people have sold properties for fifty thousand dollars. People have sold properties for a million dollars. But even that property that sold for a million dollars was subdivided by the developer, right? With and no they, restriction. And then they just sell the half of it for nine hundred, and then they right. So they know exactly what they're doing. So you said this G one zoning yeah. is unique. It is. There's only I think so of of I I don't know the exact statistic, but I think of all there was a lot more G U yeah. zoning, but it's been phased out over time. I'm, I'm asking this question about the G one zoning because I'm like, where was this? What were the other places that this was happening? Right. Right. Well, it happened in I guess behind Upper Hammond's Plains. I think is middle Mount Uniac area. So there's a section there that has it. I think it was in a they lot did. more areas. You know, they are changing the zoning in certain areas. So so for us, we do want to keep it because for us, our plans for the future is we don't want to like pigeonhole ourselves. We don't want to yes. shoot ourselves in the foot. Right. No, we don't yeah, want to exactly. make it restrictive, and then we can't do yep. developments that we want to because you know we can't. What I've learned, and this is something about capacity building in our communities, which I think we'll get to, like we need we need to understand what planning, what municipal, what city planning, planning our community, uh-huh. civil planning looks like for our communities. Because yeah. if we don't do it, they're not going to do it for us. And if they do do it for us, it's not. How do we know what we're getting is is really valuable? So that's part of what community land trust can do um, is facilitate this kind of this planning, right? So we we have a planner. We've hired like on a consultant basis, a planner to like look at our community and try to help us plan what we want for our community. Mm-hmm. And without that, we would have been given probably we probably would have changed to a different type of zoning. Do you know what I mean? So, cause we just don't understand, we don't, 
yeah. necessarily have all of the knowledge and tools to understand what, what the implications of changing the zoning would be. So you mentioned uh, a community land trust. Yeah. Can you define like what a community land trust yeah. is and how it benefits, you know, the members of the community? Sure. So a community land trust, it's a member-based nonprofit that holds land in perpetuity. So mm -hmm. they hold land forever. They don't, the, the trust never gets rid of any or sells any. Right. Typically. But every community land trust can be set up differently. There's not a one size fits all for them. So essentially, it's a member based profit. They hold land and they can essentially leverage that land for community benefit. And it's led by community. So the board of the community land trust typically is made up of a tripartite board. So that means yep. that it's in thirds. Three parties. Yeah. So the third would, a third, the first third would be folks that live in the units or work or, you know, you can have all kinds of different types of structures on the actual land then you have 30 percent, which is just community right um and then you're gonna have 30 percent of like business stakeholders that those government potentially and so that's what forms the board and so folks are able to vote essentially on you know big projects or give input into you know what happens there's not somebody that's profiting off of the deals right mm -hmm. so if essentially and if you think about it like this if you were to take the if you were to build a house and you were to take the land out of the equation the cost of the land itself out of the equation that home would be significantly less expensive yeah that's right, right? yeah and so that's what a land trust does it takes the land out of the equation so oh. you're buying when you're buying a home or renting a home you're only really paying for the improvement the structure itself right and through other me like through uh you know investment from the from, our, from a government or something, we can further increase the subsidy on that dwelling. So if you think about a, a land trust having, you know, so essentially that's how they build affordability, right? Okay. They take the land out of the equation. So, and land is acquired, land can be acquired through a number of different means, right? right? Yes. Yeah. But that's kind of the the first barrier. It's acquiring. It's acquiring, yeah. right? So in Upper Hammond's Plains, our community owns 1,100 acres of communal land, mm -hmm. right? Which is significant. And it's held by another organization, um, and it's forest land. Um, so it's trying to figure out, you know, do does the community want to continue to harvest the the yeah. wood and the topsoil from this parcel, or is there a potential for development, or you know, like what is the best thing that we can do with this, and how can we? And if that's what the, and it's, it's all based on what the community wants, but I think they're they're critical conversations for us to have. Yes, right, and and a community land trust can can push. Or not push, but you know, facilitate a place to have those, a safe place to have those conversations. It's interesting because you said it kind of levels the playing field, from uh -huh, my understanding, right. because you're saying you take the land aspect out of it, which is the most right. well, expensive exactly. thing, right? The biggest exactly. barrier, biggest yeah. barrier, right? Yeah. And when we yeah. talked about this, especially for our communities, in that sense, acquiring mm -hmm. land, but mm -hmm. so you level that playing field in yeah. that sense. And it's interesting. I like the aspect that you have a discussion about how it can be used yes right right and that's the thing so it's not always implied that it's going to be homes right. or it could be, it could a, be another right. another way to utilize the land in that capacity exactly right? another way it could like, be for business. to build capacity exactly right exactly like, wow so like if you think about and there's there's large land trusts they, yeah. they don't exist in black ones they right. don't exist here but they should because we have historically geographic communities that are based based on that are based on land right yeah and our communities have land but there's title issues yep um but the these organizations i think are i know are, are going to be a means for us to really 
take control of our communities and leverage what? economic. We have economic, we have the economic capacity sitting yeah. there, but how do? But if we're not being able to leverage it, no, right? and we never have, and that's the problem. Never. So if you think about the land trust just getting titled to a piece of land, well, if they had got titled to that land yes. two hundred years ago, yeah, right. So you think about right. then this goes back to you know the biggest destruction of black wealth has been the dispossession of our land yep right yep. displacement and destruction yeah exactly yeah. right who right. are always moving exactly <laughs> right and so if we can't build and so that's what you know even when we're help when we're people are first getting their land titles they're only just starting essentially their journey yep uh, of 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 building generational wealth, right? Yep. And so yep. I think that community control, community ownership over land is the most important piece for our communities. You you know, economically that's really so getting the land titles now is just building that generational wealth. Yeah. yeah. Because it's a start and it's a foundation. Yeah. Essentially, if you don't have clear title, your asset, whatever's on that land, has no value. Like yep. you can't get a mortgage. Yep. You can't, you can't. You can't leverage it at all. And right? I don't think, so for our listeners, yeah. not really understanding the impact, and right, this is how that affects yeah. our communities. And we have a number of communities that are going through land title issues right now. Right. right? Mm -hmm. and but essentially all of them. All of them. All in of one them way, are. shape, or form. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In one shape or form, that's yep. right. Yeah. And it's expensive process. It's a complex legal it process. It is. Another barrier. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. Lawyers, fees, things of that nature, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. So it sounds like the community land trust concept yep. would help resolve a lot of those fractured title issues. In a, in a sense. Yeah. So we have to think about, you know, the land titles initiative, like the provinces one, is for individuals essentially claiming use and occupation of property, right? Yeah. So it would be somebody saying, like, I live here and here's my claim. But, like, if you're thinking about all of the other land in our communities, that's a different conversation. Yeah. And, you know, one person can't make a claim on that. No. That's right. Right? Yeah. But a community can. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And and how would that, what would that look like? Right now, I don't know if we have the right organization. That's why it's like you need to have the right organization in place, right, mm -hmm. to make that type of claim. You need to have the right people at the table because you are you prepared to be able to steward hundreds of acres of land, right? We need to be in a position where our communities are. Think about all of our communities, and I think about it this way. If all of our communities form a trust and gain control of the land in the community and we built a coalition of land trust like uh, together across this province, we'd be one of the largest landholders here. Well, that's in, power. In a, in a way, in that's a sense, power, right? And that has significant, you know, that has significant economic impact. That has significant yes. political impact. Holy that has significant, right? So I wonder what barriers would come up though if you tried that. <laughs> yeah, like Sorry. what? What are what are some of the barriers? Like, yeah. I mean, you're 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 heading down this yeah. path with this amazing initiative. Yeah. Uh, there's not many. In, in, in Canada, right. let alone Nova Scotia, yeah. like what are some of the barriers and challenges that you've faced yeah. up until this point? Yeah. Um, you know, capacity is a big one. Mm -hmm. Capacity, I think, is my biggest one right now. Like we're having to do all of this work as volunteers, right? And so we need to get to a place where we're able to fund positions like within these organizations. We're never going to be able to really dig in and push this forward if we don't have full-time people within our organizations working on this stuff all day, you know, resources. Um, a resource is a huge one. Yeah. Um, that's a big one now. And, you know, so community land trusts essentially don't have a legal, don't have like a, a legislative structure. You can't form a legal community land trust. You form a nonprofit that, right. That, so there's, there's legislative changes that could be done. 
that could recognize a community land trust as its own entity, as an mm-hmm. own, like, cause right now you set it up as a nonprofit corporation. Right. Um, and you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to spread, um, I think a big one is representation. Like, I feel like for us, I keep pushing that we just need to have one, even not even my organization, but any, just having one house on one piece of land somewhere in one of our communities that said, look, like here's a house on a community land trust land. And here's a family that's living in it. This works. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I think that they need to see it. They need to see it. They need to, they see, need it. to see it. But, and I, and so I think about like member two, like member two in Cape Breton with that whole like the the arena and the hotel and That's all right. that, that yeah. a community land trust could look like that, right? Or similar to what like Akuma is doing. Yeah, Th- that is their model is essentially similar to a, a, what a community land trust model would look like. So the community would actually be the you know essentially the decision makers on on projects. So I think you know in a community land trust I think is has a number of different arms and it depends on you know your community and what you're dealing with, but you can be doing the planning. You know the the because we don't have we need to, we need to build that piece the planning yeah then you have kind of this you know political kind of lobbying thing yeah then you're working on land acquisitions right and you're looking at land in your communities and you're working with residents like I want to be able to work with residents to help them you know develop their own like it doesn't have to be done by the trust but I want people to have information right like this is what you would do if you wanted to actually do a subdivision or you wanted to build a One piece question. of you know a, a so home. does the community land trust that you like you initiated yeah. do you guys own the land no not yet okay right so upper hamas uhp clt doesn't own any property but um essentially we have a couple of different avenues that we we hope to go to gain possession of land yeah and so that involves the municipalities for example beachville yeah they were able to gain possession of six parcels of land um that were municipally owned so you know there's again there's there's something to say you can do this. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like this has been done. You can do this. Right. And it's just, it's about getting that one, I think that one piece or yeah. something to say yeah. that it's ours. Right. Um, we have, we have, um, we've been talking in the community about some of the land, kind of the land assets that we have going into the trust and potentially what that could look like. And so people eventually perhaps be either selling to the trust or lease it. somehow right. their trust will engage with private oh, residents. Yes. Right. Yeah. We hope to make claims on on like you know ungranted land and and um, pieces of land like that that are government owned what what are you doing within the community now to get this initiative out there like to let people know of the benefit to the community when it comes to you know the history that could be lost given all the development that's coming into the community yeah and I, i think our community really understands now the implications of of what development means yes. and what that could look like right it's fine when it's like a, a little bit but when it's out of control and and with, without a community plan it just happens it like haphazardly right there's yes. no there's no just there's nothing to say well this is where the development's going to happen that there's going to be a road built and it's going to happen all back right. here but it's like it could be behind your house it could be across the street like there's just it's like the there's wild no West. organization it could be no. like just and so the well, community wow. now just looks no planning fractured well, and yes. you lose your sense of identity you do right? lose and that's sense of identity and it's because how we say this it's gonna sound bad it's like colonialization right <laughs> like it is it's straight eurocentric in that sense right. where it's just acquire and we don't care who's around yeah, we yeah. don't care about the community yeah. itself and then it's just poof and then you look one day and you're like mm-hmm. how did this happen right yeah people are being displaced right so uh-huh. we have seniors essentially that are selling because they're getting these offers even though there's other things 
even though there's Other more significant developments can yeah. happen. But yeah. we don't we don't we can't see or we don't have time or you know the capacity to be able to hold, right? To right. hold and wait for us to be able to right? And that's 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 of no fault of our own. No. It's because, because like with the development, people are being priced out. Exactly. Of their own community. Well, so yeah. people will sell their homes and then move to Sackville and live in yeah. an apartment because yeah. the, the apartments in our community are like eighteen fifty for a two bedroom. Yeah. Right. So then they, they leave the community and it's like, yes, now you now you have you have money essentially, but like now you know, you're outside of the community, but people have to make those decisions. And I don't I don't blame them for that, right? Yeah. Because it's, I think survival. It's, and that's what the yeah. that's why I'm I want to be able to for people to do that, to be able to make those financial transactions happen those real estate transactions rather happen but then to be able to stay in the community too right for there to be options for them within the community and to see like let's say that they would if they did sell the land that then they see something else built where other people will live or that their house yeah. will be, you know, rehabilitated if it needs to be and leased to another family yeah. right. at an affordable rate. Right. Right. Like, why is it that developers get to come pillage our community and just make all of this money and we don't get any benefit from it? Right. I think one of the things that you know, helped Beachville was the the provincial like designation as a historical site, like right. reclaim some of those yeah. parcels of land yeah. or prevent further exactly. encroachment or development on some of those parcels of land. Is that part of your initiative to uh, designate Brahamas Plains as a historic site? Yeah, or I mean, a heritage site. We're like looking. All communities should be. They should yeah, absolutely be every one of them should. <laughs> right. We're looking at all of the all of the strategies. You know, oh, yeah? what are the best strategies to to do to to protect and preserve right but also to leave things open for us to be able to do what we feel like we need to do and not again yeah in the best interest exactly and so in the beginning we thought a lot about peggy's cove and how peggy's cove has this whole like you can't do anything in peggy's cove without going to this committee and and the people that live there right and it's a it's a site right so and it receives you know they're able to get funding from different organizations based on that status so yeah so yeah we're we're investigating all of those kind of measures which we're in the process of or we will be rather of getting a uh, strategic plan together that will speak to some of these things for our community yeah but i think we should be exploring any any and every possibility for us to you know put at least some types of bear you know some type of protection uh in place for our communities yeah we definitely these it's forward thinking it's it's amazing to be thinking down that path right because yeah. if we don't we're going to slowly start to lose some of our communities in that sense exactly and it's not even we like have. we're gonna start like well, we, we just need you're to right. stop like yeah. we need to stop losing our communities right yeah. well, and even if you're in a community where you think it won't happen yeah. it will happen because essentially there's planning happening 20 30 years out and if you think it doesn't involve your community and oh. on that level it does yeah right so I know you want to get into the, yeah. the legacy, but no, I don't even want we that. Talk, like, we need to keep talking. We did talk, this stuff but we didn't even talk about water. I know, yeah, I know, I know. Right? And it's, so I think we should at least allocate <laughs> five to, I don't know how much time you have, five to ten minutes <laughs> just to talk about the water. Yeah, yeah. Like, so let's, well, the water and the land the too, right? Land, yeah. Right, so. The you, land too. Go go ahead. Like, I can start with the land briefly. Okay. So, I, you know, our, our, so like when I was speaking about my grandfather, some, the, uh, some of those residents received land. Right. Um, and so that was a great 
thing. But, you know, it's similar. It's a similar story to, you know, all of the other black communities where there were some t- some titles were given, but then there was tickets of location, licenses uh-huh. of occupation, which those documents never actually resulted in receiving a deed. Right. Yeah. So we still have some historical parcels in Upper Hammonds Plains. And, you know, and then some years later, uh, folks in my community of Upper Hammonds Plains got together and bought land because of the, you know, because they were they were doing the lumbering. They were, uh-huh. in, you know, industrious people. They could purchase land so that that happened so essentially that's kind of how the land essentially the land titles were created in our community the piece of communal land has a history that dates back to 1855 that was um conveyed to the community by the crown the particulars around that story i don't i don't have but to say that it's this melvin land track protection society in upper hammonds plains that oversees that land so Um, what is that so so the Melvin Land Tract is what the land is called. Okay. It's the Melvin Land Tract, and it's after, I believe, the Melvin family, which no longer exists in Upper Hammond Space. There's a number of families that don't exist there anymore, but were originally founding families that either left or, unfortunately, uh, you know, ceased. Yeah. Ceased. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so that's kind of our, our, our land story. So we do, we do have land title issues, but we don't have large pieces of ungranted land like we see in... The Prestons, for right. example. So, you know, every community is different in that regard. Uh, but we do have this piece of communal land, right? And it, it was much larger. So so essentially in, in 19, I guess in the early 1970s, the municipality was looking for a place to develop a watershed, mm-hmm. right? So they needed, they, they were starting to really ramp up development in, in Halifax and Dartmouth, Sackville, and so they needed a new reservoir. And so they identified Pockwalk Lake yeah. as as that place. So they expropriated, I think in 1974, they expropriated 350 acres of the Melvin Land Tract to make way for the J.D. Klein transmission plant, which is the plant that basically it's the primary reservoir for Halifax County. So that would provide water to Halifax um Sackville, mm-hmm. Bedford, you know, this and, and out to Hammonds, out through Hammonds Plains. So they put that in, but all of Upper Hammonds, so the water lines ran through, it, it basically intersects, it's behind, it's back, but it intersects the Melvin Land Tract. Right. And so the, the main water lines would run right in our backyards, essentially, uh, or in the yards of residents of Upper Hammonds Plains. And that went on for 20 years years over 20 years well our water was brown and smelled like eggs sulfur and so essentially in the in the 90s you know folks are saying like enough is enough like we have clean water in our backyard but we don't have access to it right we need the water brought here the power like to to literally get to the transmission line they have to drive through our community to up the pockwalk road to this transmission plant right and you've taken our land to do it and given us, I, you know, there's different, I guess, explanations for what was given, but not much was given. I, I heard think like a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. Okay, right. And so, but but we had to go to court, right? The community filed essentially like a class action lawsuit against Halifax Water, and so all of that, fun, all of that money that would have been given to us was eaten in legal fees. But yep. we did win, and so a court issued an order to say that the residents of Upper Hammonds Plains were to receive water. 
from that watershed. So then, of course, you know, they had to bring the trucks and start digging the lines. And and so, but it wasn't without a significant fight, right? That went all through litigation. You just said it took 20 years. Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't until 1996 that they but actually got access to the water. No, it's no. not that long ago. 1996. Right. So, exactly. Like, you know, like, and this is... Uh, you know, think about how long certain things have been going on. Like exactly, it just doesn't make sense, right? Exactly, and so it was determined that, in fact, the at racism the time they said, yeah, well, it's systemic racism, it's, it's systemic. The, it's also the environmental, environmental racism, right? like, like it's yeah, it's yeah, it's systemic. It's how systemic racism rises at all. You know, but even like I love the fact that you said that. So so yeah, so you know, we we ended up getting the water, but it, it was a lot. It was a fight, and so. Part of what the land trust is doing now, after all of this time, we we wrote along with and with support from the com- other community organizations, we wrote to Halifax Water and we met with them. Just just I guess a couple of months, maybe eight weeks ago, and so we're starting to have another conversation. It's like, look, we're we're two of the biggest neighbors in this community, right? Like Upper Hammonds Plains and Halifax Water, but we don't speak to each other, right? And so and and you know further to that part of the Melvin land tract is co- now covered by a watershed protection zone for a potential watershed for the Tomahawk Lake, which is on the other side. So that also also covers 900 acres of our communal land. Um, so that's all something that we've discovered after, after getting these planners in. And so this is what I'm talking about. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about barriers. Look, and so our community didn't know about this, right? We didn't know. Well, because they create the policies. Yeah. And, and they think and they don't have to tell you. Yeah. And they don't really have to tell you. Yeah. So so now we're starting now that granted that was a positive meeting. Um, and we look forward to, you know, building more building a stronger critical partnership with them going yeah. forward because it, you know, it's required. And so when I was talking about when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about North Preston. Yes. Because of what's going on there. And so I had reached out to the ratepayers and I think North Preston's future about their potential thoughts about approaching Halifax water. And so we look forward to working with them and kind of having an, a dual uh, approach to, to, uh, you know, working with this organization because we have so, to, but there's so many, we see so many great things happening within like the communities that we have explored. I mean, one of the things I want to know is like, how can we get involved? I think it's about what you do with the information. now. Yes. So when we're going into communities and we're doing this, like it's about talking about our experience with, have you looked into this? Like yep. it's, highlighting. You know, it's highlighting this because this is, it's impactful. Right. And we have to, one thing you said to me that really planning and understanding the planning, but like I go back to your original story, which I thought was really interesting, by the way, like taking that course, but getting exposure to like BOMA. Yeah. Having representation in terms of like, Real estate, I, hundred percent. So it, it's so impactful in that sense, and I think that's what it's what you do with the information and how you spread that message mm-hmm. amongst your communities. Yeah, and through this work, and I and I think one of the biggest things is capacity, and I talk about this a lot, but I think that this space that we're finding ourselves in, community organization, community organizing around land, there's so many skills professional mm-hmm. skills that that you need yes. you, know, you need planners you need architects you yeah. need engineers you need people that can can look at for people that understand forestry design yeah. forestry plans and how to harvest yes right and then you need realtors you yep. need all of the people that can market property 
you need community develop like you need people in the community that can act because the community also has to be involved in this so you need community development people yeah and so you know the more that we dig into this the more that we realize there's definitely a gap here so like part of what we really want to focus on is building capacity here so like you know we want essentially our, our we have a planner here but we want someone from the community to work closely with them so they can be exposed to this profession yeah um because we don't have we don't have any we have or we have very very few if at all any it goes back to like the lack of representation within our community like, yeah, real representation but also like succession planning yeah so we have to start thinking about that sometimes we forget like this initiative will be here then it will we have to pass this down yep. to future generations, yep. right? We feel your passion uh, for, for your project, uh, for the initiative and the history of the community. What message do you want to share, you know, for future generations about the community and this initiative? Yeah, no, I think that we need to be having more conversations about that about encouraging folks to like look like let us know i want people to be really curious and seek information about land because we all we all have an idea of oh this is my family's land and oh yeah somebody owns we know someone owns this over there but like really find out about it and there you know it, this is information that you can get access to really understand the lay of the land in your community yeah. um i think that's super important and i think people need to when we're talking about getting involved i think people having convert those conversations in their own community communities is the most important piece yeah. right because you know you you know your community best and i think that when you start to have these conversations it's it's going to organically turn it's, it's going to fire people up like how it did for us i know that this is happening now in a lot of other communities too yeah. right so i think it just takes us take someone to, to start to have those conversations and to perhaps start to lead you know that work in their own community and and there's support out there there's other groups like ours and others that are you know open to supporting and collaborating and and getting involved in it also it's, it's super important to, to know your zoning within your own community and you can look that up really easily on your, your municipal you know website really understand what's possible and what isn't and what's restrictive and what is and what's the possibility zoning is super important um because i know it's a huge it, in our community and i think in others it's 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 a way of the planning piece so you really need to understand how that's going to affect your your plans for the future thank you for listening to the loyalist connections podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your hosts, Maurice Gabriel Downey and myself, Sean Smith of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind the scenes content. And until the next episode, Stay connected. connected.